0: Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. On May 8, 1541, Spanish conquistador Hernando de Soto and a small army came upon a mighty river as they marched across what today is the American South. The exact location is not known. But at the time, the wide river held little interest for DeSoto, except that it was an obstacle in its progress west. A year later, the conquistador died of a fever along the west bank of the same body of water, not realizing he had come across one of the greatest natural arteries in the world, the Mississippi River. And with the discovery of the Mississippi by Europeans, the question rose as to the route and the source of the mighty river. To find the answer might offer the person who controlled said river a valuable economic highway into the center of the unknown North American continent. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Today we begin a two-part series on Explorers Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet and their search for the Big River, aka the Mississippi, which cuts through the heart of the North American continent. A few notes about today's show. First, check out our website, explorerspodcast.com, if you want to see a route of Marquette and Joliet's expedition. Our focus will be on the Great Lakes region of North America, so some of these places can be pretty obscure, and thus a map might help you enjoy the series. 2. In this series, we have a lot of French and Native American names. As always, I'll try and give you my best pronunciation, but my pardon if I mess something up. 3. The sources for the show are scant and, at times, not always reliable, so be aware that there are some unknowns in our story and contradictions. I'll try and keep to what I think is the best answer but I'll let you know if anything major comes up in a dispute. That is it for notes. So for today's story, we are going to break things down into four buckets. First, I will do a bit of background into French Canada circa 1660, just so that we can set the stage for our narrative. Second, I'll do a quick look at the background of Jacques Marquette. Bucket three will be a background of Louis Joliet. We will finish up by bringing our explorers together and getting them to the Mississippi River in June of 1673. And with that, let's get going, the story of Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet in the search for the Mississippi River. Our story begins more than 100 years after the arrival of the French in the New World. This would be the early explorations of the St. Lawrence River region by Jacques Cartier, which we did a show on last year, so check that out if you want some extra special background. Attempts to colonize what is now Canada were unsuccessful until 1608, when Samuel de Champlain established Quebec. From there, the French gradually expanded west using the St. Lawrence River and its tributaries as roadways into the Canadian interior. The primary attraction of New France, as it was called, was the fur trade, and most specifically, beaver pelts. Hats made from felted beaver fur were all the rage in Europe from about 1550 and into the 1800s. The reason for this is that beaver fur is soft yet resilient and can easily be combed into a variety of hat shapes. In the early days of the fur trade. Native Americans brought their furs to French settlements and traded the pelts for European goods, especially metal items such as knives, hatchets, pots, and pans, plus firearms. But soon, entrepreneurs began to go into the Canadian wild to make deals with the Native people. These men were often called curés de bois, the runners of the woods. These were rough frontiersmen who lived amongst the Native peoples. They often served as scouts and guides and interpreters. With the mention of the curés de bois, I want to alert you to another of our podcasts, which is about Etienne Brûlé, one of the earliest and most celebrated runners of the woods. I recommend listening to his story, it's just a single episode, if you want to learn some more about the exploration of this region in the early 1600s. Anyhow, French frontiersmen gradually pushed west, mapping the famed Great Lakes. In 1634, Trader Jean Nicolet canoed down Lake Michigan and landed at what is modern-day Green Bay. The locals told Nicolet of the big river that lay to the west. Nicolet would follow the Fox River south and portage over to the Wisconsin River. He then rode down the Wisconsin until it widened before turning around. He was sure a great body of water was at the end of the Wisconsin River. French officials were excited about Nicolet's journey because they had visions of finding a trade route through North America and to the Pacific Ocean. If they could do that, they had a route to the riches of the Far East. An alternative to that scenario was that the Big River went south. Many speculated that the river found by Hernando de Soto back in 1541 was the outlet to this big river spoken about by the Native peoples, which they, in some form, called the Mississippi. However, the attempt by French traders to expand and learn more was thwarted by a contentious relationship with the Native peoples, particularly the Iroquois, often called the Five Nations by the French. These people lived to the south of the St. Lawrence River, but often warred with their neighbors to the north, the Algonquins, and in time, that meant the French. The French tried to make a peace with the five nations, but it was elusive. An element that I want to introduce into our story at this time are the Jesuit priests that came to Canada to evangelize the native peoples. The Jesuits were a group of men dedicated to teaching the word of Christ. To them, a person had to become a Catholic in order to save one's soul. This meant that going into the lands of unbelievers was critical to their mission. Jesuits were active all over the world and often endured difficult conditions, even death. This was no different in Canada. The black robes, as they were called by the native peoples, went out and preached the word of God, and they had their successes, but also their failures. The Iroquois were hostile toward the French, and by extension, their priests. The Jesuit order had a strong educational and intellectual bent, and thus many of the priests learned the languages of the native peoples, and that would help them earn the respect of many tribes. But when the Iroquois grew hostile, nothing the black robes did could protect them, At least eight of the priests were killed in these early years of New France, including one man who was tortured and had his head cut off. This was 1647. Now, despite the best efforts of the Jesuits, the French presence in Canada was weak. There were numerous issues. A big one was that most of the people who came to Canada were there to make money. They wanted to trap or trade or search for minerals, then go back to France, hopefully with a fortune. Thus, the colony failed to attract families, which would have helped stabilize it and allow it to grow. A major reason for this was the Company of 100 Associates. This was a French trading and colonization organization, chartered in 1627. The company had a monopoly on trade and the colony's policies and funds. The company was responsible for not just trade, but for promoting colonization in New France. But the company focused on the thing most companies focus on, trade. They made their money and sent some back to the king. But the rest of the equation, such as bringing in and keeping colonists, was lacking. Investment was needed in the colony's infrastructure. New France needed soldiers to protect the colonists. It needed buildings and fortifications. It needed crops to be planted and harvested. And the colony needed to diversify its output. By relying strictly on furs, it risked the highs and lows of the market. Again, for that, Canada needed colonists and administrators focused on the long-term good of the colony. But none of that was happening, and by the 1660s, New France was on the brink of collapse. But things were about to change. The French government dissolved the Company of 100 Associates in 1663 and brought in new administrators and officials to revitalize the colony. The 1660s also marks the arrival of the Filles du Roi, which translates as the King's Daughters. This was 800 young women specifically recruited to help populate the new colony. And this would work, and within a few years, New France was on the rebound. So that sort of gets us up to the mid-1660s, and now I want to talk about our two explorers, Marquette and Joliet. I'll start with Marquette. Jacques Marquette was born in the city of Lonne in northern France in 1637. He had two sisters and three brothers. He was the eldest son. His parents were Nicolas Marquette and Rose de La Salle. The family was an old one with a reputation for civic and military service. Nicolas Marquette was a successful lawyer. Young Jacques was sent to the local Jesuit school at the age of nine. Now, this was not necessarily because the intent was for the boy to become a priest, The Jesuits had set up schools all over the world, and to attend one was a prestigious thing. The quality of the education was outstanding, students learning history, math, geography, Latin, and the classics, not to mention religious studies. If you wanted a good education, going to a Jesuit school was a great choice. As a student, Marquette developed a reputation as an earnest, smart young man. He showed an interest in the priesthood, in particular missionary work. Due to that interest, Jacques would go to the Jesuit school on Nancy at the age of 17, By 19, he had enrolled in the priesthood. His superiors noted his good judgment, prudence, and excellent health. He was viewed as a strong prospect for foreign mission work. Marquette spent his young adulthood teaching in France, as well as continuing his religious studies. Jump to 1666, and we find New France's fortunes, as we talked about, on the upturn. But that also meant that the colony was in desperate need of men of the cloth. The population was rising, and with every step west, the need to send missionaries into the ranks of the native peoples grew. Marquette was thus selected for mission work in Canada, and he was thrilled to be off on a new adventure. On March 7, 1666, Marquette went through a ceremony elevating him to the status as a full Jesuit priest. He departed for Canada in August. It was a six-week voyage to Quebec, and Marquette got his first experience dealing with scurvy. In addition to his work as a priest, he helped nurse those who got sick. Marquette arrived in Quebec, which was the colony's capital. About 180 miles west, up the St. Lawrence River, was Montreal, the furthest west settlement. In between was Trois-Rivières. All of these towns were rough frontier settlements. Montreal had a population of around 600. If you had wandered through one of these at this time, you would have seen fur trappers, traders, merchants, laborers, and even native Indians bustling about. Marquette would have come into a region that was, for the first time in many years, mostly safe. A major job for the young priest was to evangelize the natives. Around the French towns, the native people were mostly settled. From them, Marquette began to learn their languages. And he proved to be very good at it, eventually learning six different native dialects. These were predominantly Algonquin. This included dialects for the Cree, Ojibwe, Menominee, and Potawatomi. But there were other languages as well, including some Iroquoian, primarily due to dealing with the Huron, who lived north of Lake Ontario. Anyhow, Marquette proved to be an energetic, inquisitive, and dutiful priest. And once he began mastering the languages of the native people and getting a better understanding of their cultures and customs, it was soon time for him to move out of the towns and into the wilds of Canada. In August of 1668, Marquette headed west toward the Great Lakes with four guides and two canoes plus some Ottawa Indians. The Jesuits had recently established a mission in the area of Sault Ste. Marie, and that was Marquette's destination. It was a 1,500-mile journey. By the way, I want to point out that Sault Ste. Marie is an odd spelling. It actually looks like Salt-Saint-Marie, S-A-U-L-T, but it is pronounced Sault-Saint-Marie. Just wanted to let you know that. The route Marquette took was to Montreal and then north up the Ottawa River. After that, it was west along a twisting route to Lake Huron. In the northeast corner of Lake Huron, you follow St. Mary's River, which connects Huron and Superior. This is where Sault-Saint-Marie is located, making it a regional trading hub. As a note, if you go south about 70 miles, or 115 kilometers you'll reach the Mackinac Strait, which connects Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. The convergence of these three great lakes makes the region very active and an important juncture for trade. The journey to the new mission was a rough one, the men, including Marquette, often having to portage the canoes and provisions over rapids, falls, and rocks, but our young priest proved up to the task. At Sault Ste. Marie, Marquette found an active Chippewa village. The Chippewa were masters of fishing the area, and tribes came from all around to trade for their catch. It was here that Marquette helped construct a new church, all the while teaching and preaching to the locals. He even learned native sign language. In addition to the native village and the mission, French trappers and traders set up shop. By the way, French officials had made it illegal to trap and trade for furs in the colony without a license. This gave rise to the more organized companies and to the decline of the individual frontiersmen, a.k.a. the corps de bois, these new frontiersmen are often referred to by historians as voyagers, although that term had not yet come into vogue in the spring of sixteen sixty nine Marquette was sent to the mission of La Pointe du Saint aspre, located on Madeline Island on the southern shore of Lake Superior. This is just east of modern-day Duluth and Superior on the northern tip of Wisconsin in the Chiwaamagan Bay region. This was a five hundred mile journey along the coast of Lake Superior, which took Marquette a month to complete due to ice and bad weather. The mission at La point was crude, but Marquette stayed for two years, although he did go back to Sault Ste. Marie in the spring of the following year, along with a large contingent of natives, the latter bringing beaver pelts and other furs to barter with the French traders. Now, one thing Marquette learned from the native people was the story of the great river to the west. One Illinois Indian told Marquette the river ran through his people's territory, going south. Marquette yearned to go searching for such a river and bring the word of God to the Indians, he even wrote to his superiors, asking to be part of any such expedition as the representative of the church. In the spring of 1671, the locals, who were mostly displaced Ottawa and Huron, were becoming increasingly threatened by the Sioux from the west. Due to this, many of them elected to head east to find a new, safer home. Marquette would lead the refugees to Sault Ste. Marie and then down to michele Mackinac Island, which today is known as Mackinac Island. This is near the Mackinac Strait, which I noted earlier connects Lake Huron and Lake Michigan. The Jesuits, led by Marquette, established a new mission here, calling it St. Ignace. However, the soil proved to be bad for planting crops, so the natives and the Jesuits moved to the mainland. Again, you can look at a map if you want to understand the exact locations of these places. Here, Père Marquette, Père is French for father, would oversee a growing band of native peoples, preaching the Word of God and trying to convert them to the faith, which was never easy. He took in their languages, their customs, and their culture. And he listened to them, and more than once he heard tales of the great river to the west. He again requested permission to go find this river. And that brings us to December of 1672. A fur trader would arrive at St. Ignace seeking out Marquette. That man's name was Louis-Juliette. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusion supply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohoo, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kinda like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary, DW, are prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Louis Joliet was born in the late summer of 1645. We don't know the exact date. In Beaupré on the St. Lawrence River. His parents were Jean Joliet and Marie Davencourt. Louis had a sister and two brothers. His father was a wheelwright and wagon master, working for the company 100 Associates, the organization that had a monopoly on trade in New France. As a note, Jean Joliet would have strictly worked with handcarts as no horses were brought to Canada until 1647. Anyhow, these were the rough and tumble days of the French colony, the population living on the edge of survival. Young Louis grew up amongst the native Indians, hunters, and trappers. From the natives, he learned their ways and languages. Louis's father, Jean, died in 1651 after a long illness. As there were far more men in New France than women, Jean's widow, Marie, remarried quickly to a prosperous trader in Quebec. And it was there that Louis's stepfather would enroll him in a Jesuit school. As I mentioned earlier, there was no better place to get a classical education than a Jesuit school. Juliet learned mathematics, history, and Latin. He proved to be a skilled sketcher and an excellent musician. He played numerous instruments, including the organ, harpsichord, flute, and trumpet. Now, we talk about the dangers of New France, and in 1658, those dangers became a reality for the Joliet family. And that's when Louis's brother, Adrian, went exploring in the nearby forest, only to be captured by Iroquois warriors. When Adrian wasn't found in the coming days, everyone feared the worst. However, several months later, Adrian would suddenly reappear, his skin deeply tanned and his body lean and gaunt, but unharmed. He had been taken as a slave, but when a friendly chief discovered the young white man, he arranged to have him freed. Thus, Adrian returned to Quebec with the ability to speak Iroquoian and a thousand stories to tell. And that takes us up to 1662, when 17 year old Louis made a big decision he was going to become a priest. And so, for the next five years, Louis Joliette went down the path of entering the priesthood. His two brothers, Adrian and Zachary, went into the fur trading business. But Joliet's flirtation with the priesthood would come to an end in 1667. The lure of adventure was simply too much. He would thus be released from his holy vows. Joliet was not, however, off into the wilderness to trade alongside his brothers. Instead, he went to France using money loaned to him by Quebec's bishop. Why exactly Joliet was sent back to the mother country, we don't exactly know. Perhaps it was an errand for the church. Others speculate that Joliet was sent to Paris for schooling, specifically for map making and hydrography. Remember, Joliet's talents with the pencil were well known, and hydrography is the study of the seas, lakes, and rivers. To have him learn the skills of a map maker would have been valuable to French officials in Canada. No matter the reason, Joliet returned home in late 1668 and joined his brothers in their fur trading business. Louis borrowed some money to get started in the trade, purchasing two guns, two pistols, a hat, clothing, and two pairs of shoes. He also bought trade goods, including beads, bells, hatchets, cloth, canvas, and tobacco. The Joliet family had a warehouse in Trois-Rivières between Montreal and Quebec. The natives came to the warehouse, swapping beaver pelts for European goods. In the fall of 1669, Adrian Joliet went to the Lake Superior area at the behest of French officials in Quebec. There were rumors that copper ore had been found on the western shore of the lake, and Adrian was to follow up on those rumors. On September 24th, Adrian encountered another trader, René Robert-Cavier, Sieur de La Salle, and his party. La Salle had recently become one of the first Europeans to reach the Ohio River. The two spent the night together, parting ways the next morning. After that, Adrian Joliet was never seen again. The loss of Adrian was a devastating one to the Joliet family. Adrian left a wife and children, and it was up to Louis and his brother, Zachary, to support him. And so, the Joliet family ventured west, establishing a trading post which included a forge at Sault Ste. Marie. Louis took on many of the roles that Adrian had filled prior to his death, becoming a first-rate frontiersman. And with that, I want to introduce a new character into our story, Jean Toulon. Toulon was a key figure in the rejuvenation of New France. He became the colony's intendant, which is the second-highest-ranking colonial official. The Company of 100 lost their charter and was replaced by an entirely new structure. Talon thought long-term, supporting families financially, diversifying trade, and making the colony safer. To this end, the king sent a regiment of regular soldiers, and Talon began a campaign against the Iroquois. The French initiative against the Iroquois was led by the Marquis Alexandre de Prouville de Tracy, I think I butchered that really badly, whose army numbered around 1,200. It consisted of French regulars, militia, and Indian allies. Tracy led his force to the south, burning villages and crops as he went. Tracy eventually brought the Iroquois to heel without any major battles, as they were reduced to starvation. He repeated these tactics against the Mohawk nation, and within a year, a peace treaty was struck. This greatly reduced the threat to New France and opened up the West for more exploration. In his biography of Marquette, titled Jacques Marquette, author Joseph Donnelly had this to say about the colony's intendant. Quote, Jean Talon was an exceptionally capable administrator with the surprising ability to grasp the problems of the colony and offer practical solutions. To demonstrate the success of this new initiative, in 1665 there were 3,200 settlers in Canada. Three years later it was 6,200, almost doubling, and that didn't include the soldiers. And so, with things looking up, Jean Talon cast his gaze toward bigger things. He wanted to unlock the riches of the West. The French still dreamed of finding a passage to the Pacific and a route to Asia. Talon imagined Canada becoming a financial and political heavyweight. On October 10, 1670, he wrote to the king saying, Since my arrival, I have sent resolute men to explore farther than have ever been done in Canada, some to the west and northwest, others to the southwest and south. And to that end, he turned to Louis Joliet with a new goal, to find the big river that lay to the west. The top Jesuit priest in Quebec, Father Claude de Blanc, had recommended Joliet for the job. De bon also recommended that a Jesuit priest be part of the expedition. After hearing the proposal, Louis Joliet was on board. He would finance the entire expedition, roughly 3,000 livres, in exchange for exclusive trading rights to these newly discovered territories. The 27-year-old Joliet was an outstanding selection. He was young, healthy, and respected. He had good common sense, and his map-making skills were considered exceptional. Plus, he knew the lands and the people and their languages. And finally, it was a chance for him to make money and find glory and excitement. For Jean Talon, the expedition was a strong move to solidify French control of the region. And so, Louis Joliet began to prepare for his new venture. In Quebec, he gathered canoes, trade goods, food, and provisions. He brought on partners, including his brother, Zachary. The expedition would consist of six men, plus Joliet. They gathered on October 1, 1672, in Quebec and signed on as partners to the venture. These men were all veteran traders and trappers, the vanguard of the famed Voyagers. Many were of mixed race, the children of white men and Indian women. The expedition departed the next day. They headed up the Ottawa River, crossed Lake Nipissing and the Georgian Bay, and then reached Lake Huron. They arrived at Sault Ste. Marie, where the men, except Louis Joliet, reopened the family trading post. Joliet then paddled 70 miles, or 113 kilometers, to the mission at St. Ignace, reaching it on December 8th. There, the 27-year-old Joliet met with the 35-year-old Père Marquette, handing him a letter from his superiors in Quebec. Marquette opened the letter, reading it with growing excitement. He was to accompany Joliet on his expedition to find the Great River. It was something the priest had always dreamed of. Now, as this was December, Marquette and Joliet were not going anywhere for many months. They had to wait for spring before departing. Thus, they spent the winter poring over existing maps, plotting their route, and gathering supplies for the journey. Food was not going to be a major issue as the lakes and rivers were stocked with fish, and the forests and plains offered plenty of game. When spring came around, the expedition was ready for departure. There were two canoes, each with wooden struts and birch bark coverings. This made them very light, probably no more than 60 to 80 pounds, yet they could carry heavy loads. In each canoe, the men meticulously packed the gear and provisions, which were assembled in 100-pound bags, or 45 kilograms there was cooking gear, powder shot, clothing, trade goods, and much more. Marquette brought along a chalice, vestments, missile, a bottle of mass wine, and hosts. Joliet had a compass and an astrolabe, the latter for measuring latitude. Regarding Marquette and Joliet, the latter, Joliet, was the expedition's leader. It's a bit odd that history refers to this venture as Marquette and Joliet's expedition, when there's no question that it was Joliet who was the top man. He had the expertise and experience needed for the job, Marquette was important, perhaps even essential, but not in the way that Joliet was. Still, I'm good with tying the two men together and following each of their stories. Both are unique yet iconic characters to this time and place. Joliet represents the classic Voyager, while Marquette is one of the famed black robes. They each were important to the exploration of Canada. Anyhow, the two men appeared to get along well and trusted one another, and they almost surely had met in the past. Marquette had probably heard Joliet play organ at the Cathedral in Quebec, and Joliet had come to the trading post in Sault Ste. Marie on previous missions. And so, in the spring of 1673, the expedition prepared to depart. The plan was to go to Green Bay and follow the Fox River to the south. The men would then portage their canoes and gear over to the Wisconsin River and paddle west. If things worked out, the Wisconsin would take them to the big river spoken about by the natives of the region. In addition to Marquette and Joliet, the expedition included Jean Thierberge, Jacques Lagridier, Pierre Moreau, and Jean Plantier. Zachary Joliet stayed at the trading post for business purposes, and thus another man was added, Pierre Porteret. This made for a total of seven men, including Joliet and Marquette. Of the departure, Pierre Marquette wrote, quote, Accordingly, on the 17th day of May, 1673, we started from the mission at St. Ignace at Michilimack, where I then was. The joy that we felt at being selected for this expedition animated our courage and rendered the labor of paddling from morning to night agreeable to us." And so, down the western shore of Lake Michigan went the expedition. One canoe carried three men, the other four. In each, one man knelt at the bow, which is the front of the canoe, and paddled. Another man sat in the back of the stern and steered. A third man would sit in the middle, resting. These three men would rotate positions throughout the day. Father Marquette was not part of the rotation. The canoes typically traveled about 30 miles each day, or 48 kilometers. Each night, the boats were brought onto the shore, and a camp was set up. Simple meals were cooked, and pipes were smoked. There were no tents. The canoes went along the southern shore of what is now Michigan's Upper Peninsula. They then entered Green Bay, and I'm not talking about the city, but the actual bay. This is 120 miles long, and between 10 and 20 miles wide. Soon after, the men reached the Menominee River on the western side of the bay. Here they encountered some Menominee natives, called wild rice Indians by the French, due to the wild rice they cultivated in their lands. The French asked the Menominee about the big river, but they were warned the dangers were too great. They advised the French to turn around. The river was filled with demons and monsters, not to mention surrounded by unfriendly tribes. They said that at the mouth of the river the sun was so hot it burned men to death. Marquette and Joliet thanked the natives for their advice and moved on. The canoes reached what is modern-day Green Bay on May 27th. They'd gone about 200 miles or 320 kilometers. Here was the Jesuit mission of St. Francis Xavier, which was just a single crude cabin. The priest at the mission was Father Claude Alouet. They did learn one thing from some visiting Illinois Indians, called Kaskaskia, who had come from far in the south. The Kaskaskia said that their river, called the Illinois, was a tributary to the Great River. Joliet and Marquette tucked this information away. If this was true, they could possibly return using this route. From here, the two canoes proceeded up the Fox River. Quick note here. The Fox River flows north and empties into Green Bay. This is odd because most rivers in this region go south. The Fox River was calm at first, but soon there were rapids. From Green Bay, there is a 30-mile stretch of the river that leads to Lake Winnebago that rises 170 feet, or 50 meters, over a series of five rapids. This meant that at each set of rapids, the canoes had to be unloaded and then carried upstream. The men would then go get all the packs, haul them to the canoes, and reload them. It was a slow process, but the French voyagers were experts at this. To them, this was just part of the job. This is, by the way, the beauty of the birch bark canoes. They were light, making them relatively easy to carry around or over any rocks and rapids. Once past the rapids, the boats entered Lake Winnebago, a large lake more than 30 miles or 50 kilometers long. Halfway down the western side of the lake, the Fox River continued, going south. And so up the Fox River continued the canoes. And this was not the easiest of journeys, as the area was quite swampy. Joliet Marquette and the team continued up the Fox for about 50 miles, or 80 kilometers, before coming to a mascotin Indian village. Marquette noted in his journal, quote, Here is the limit of the discoveries which the French have made, End quote. The French were welcomed by the Maskatoon. The two groups smoked a peace pipe, and there was a feast. Joliet was able to speak to them as their language was an Algonquin dialect. The peace pipe, by the way, is a ceremonial pipe used in many American Indian cultures. In very simple terms, the idea was that a person, or people, could present the pipe when encountering another tribe. It signaled a desire for friendly relations. The French told the Maskatoons they were exploring new territories and asked them for help in finding the Great River. To the joy of the French, the Mascoutines said they knew the way. There was a spot about ten miles up the Fox River. There, a person could walk to another river, the Wisconsin, which led to the Big River. Two Miami natives living with the Mascoutines agreed to lead the French to the Portage and over to the Wisconsin. And so onward went Marquette and Joliet. The two guides did exactly as they had said they would do, taking the French to a spot on the river and leading them over an ancient footpath to another, bigger river, the Wisconsin, which flowed west. This spot, by the way, is the present-day location of Portage, Wisconsin. Regarding the Portage, Father Marquette counted the steps from one river to the next. There were 2,700 paces, or about 1.5 miles, or 2.5 kilometers. Once the French had moved over to the Wisconsin, the two native guides departed. Here on the banks of the Wisconsin River, Father Marquette gathered the men and prayed for good fortune as they headed into the unknown. The Wisconsin proved to be a relatively easy river to navigate. While there were some rocky areas and stony banks, the river featured long stretches of calm water that flowed through the rolling plains of central Wisconsin. The men spied deer, beaver, and other game. Another creature seen for the first time were the wild cattle, a.k.a. the buffalo. The French saw great herds of them, numbering in the hundreds, even thousands. The French explorers continued down the Wisconsin River for 120 miles over seven days, and then on June 17, 1673, the Wisconsin merged with another river a big river, the big river, the Mississippi. Father Marquette wrote, quote, we entered the Mississippi on the 17th of June with a joy that I cannot express, end quote. The French entered the Mississippi at what today is Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. It would have been an impressive moment. The Mississippi was wide and consisted of multiple channels that flowed steadily to the south. Around the men were bluffs, forests, and grasslands. And so Louis Joliet and Jacques Marquette had found the great river that they'd been hearing about for nearly a decade. Up and down the river, the native people, no matter the tribe, called it the same thing, the Mississippi. And here, my friends, is where we will leave things for today. Our French explorers had reached their goal, but now they had to find out where the mighty river went and then get home. Next time, we will conclude our series on Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet and the exploration of the Mississippi River. I want to finish today by acknowledging an important person to this podcast, and that is Ross, who one year ago today joined the show as an editor. If you noticed, last year we produced three episodes a month on average, up from two the previous year. And the reason for that is what Ross does. And he's not just a tech guy. Ross loves history. And even before coming on board, he was a fan of the show. He helps out with a lot of stuff, including proofing, fact-checking, and pronunciations. And he writes the occasional script. So special thanks to Ross, who helps make the show possible. Anyhow, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows such as Your Brain on Facts and Who Did What Now. No necessary. by law. 18 plus Terms and apply. See website for details. Hello. My name's Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, You can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.